Part 1 of Chapter 5 of Uncle Joe's Stories by Edward Natchbull Hugesson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Allison Hester. Part 1 of Chapter 5 Ophelia Next to an insane giant, there is nothing more terrible than a mad pygmy. It was therefore a dreadful event for all people concerned when the king of the pygmies went out of his senses. The disease came on gradually, and was not immediately discovered. His majesty had never been of a very lively disposition, and the court was therefore not much amazed when he withdrew from the public gaze, little by little, until he was very rarely visible beyond the precincts of the palace, and was understood to be deep in his studies. Those, however, who had the privilege of being immediately about his royal person were well aware that his majesty was seriously indisposed. At first, the symptoms were only those of profound melancholy. He declined his food repeatedly, refused to open his letters, buried his face constantly in his hands, and went to bed when the dinner bell rang. This was unpleasant, as the royal household were forbidden by the laws of that kingdom to have any dinner except at the same time with the king, and as pygmies are invariably blessed with good appetites, much inconvenience would have been caused but for the recognized fact that nobody ever obeyed the laws unless it happened to suit him to do so. In this manner, the difficulty was got over, and the illness of the king might have been concealed from his people if no other symptoms had appeared. But from silent melancholy, the unhappy monarch shortly passed to the stage of frantic violence. He threw anything he could lay his hands on at the head of any individual who came near him, used the most fearful language, and gave the most extraordinary orders. These at first were evaded or received in silence, in the hope they might be forgotten as soon as spoken. But when the king insisted upon it that the prime minister should be cut in pieces, the Lord Chamberlain fed upon rabbit skins and oil, and the Chief Justice baked without further delay, these functionaries severally and together came to the conclusion that the thing could go no further. The laws of Pygmyland were clear and well known. Upon the death or incapacity through illness of the reigning sovereign, his eldest son always ascended the throne as a matter of course, and, failing sons, his nearest relative succeeded to the scepter. Unfortunately, however, the king of the pygmies had neither son nor relative of any kind, which arose principally from the fact of his having destroyed his father's and mother's families, owing to those jealous fears which often disturb and distract the minds of tyrants, and from the additional circumstance that he had never seen fit to marry. Thus, King Pugpaws was the last of his race, and although he was undoubtedly no longer fit to govern the nation, the question as to his successor was, as will readily be imagined, one of very great doubt and difficulty. The three great officers of state, that is to say, the Prime Minister, the Lord Chamberlain, and the Chief Justice, who rejoiced in the ancient and high-sounding names of Binks, Chinks, and Pigspud, laid their heads together several times before they could by any means agree as to what should be done. Each of them would have been willing to undertake the government himself, and each thought he was the best person to whom it could possibly be entrusted. 
but the other two held quite a different opinion. Chinks and Pigspud well knew that Binks, eaten up with gout and rheumatism, was not a person whom the pygmy nation would ever accept for their king. Pigspud and Binks were perfectly well aware that Chinks had a wife and family whose combined arrogance and extravagance would certainly ruin the kingdom if he were placed upon the throne, and Binks and Chinks were thoroughly acquainted with the evil life which caused the public to regard Pigspug as one of the worst men, though the best of judges. So, since it was evident that none of the three could be safely elevated to the throne, it became necessary to look about for somebody else. The names of all the great people about the court were duly considered, but although there were several who would have been very willing to undertake the business, there were objections to all. One was too old, another too idle, a third too tyrannous a disposition, and a fourth too stupid for the place. So for a time it really seemed as if it would be impossible to find a king, and that they must either put up with their mad sovereign or go without one altogether. Neither of these results, however, would have been satisfactory, either to the court or to the nation, and it was therefore with joy, rather than anger, that the three great officers of the state received the news that a relation of the royal family had been discovered to exist, in whom a successor to the unhappy madman might be found. This was the only son of the king's uncle, who, having been cruelly treated by his father in early youth, had left Pygmyland in disgust and had been currently reported to have died shortly afterwards. This, however, had not been the case. Prince Famcram had done nothing of the kind, and had never intended to leave the world unless compelled to do so, by circumstances beyond his control. He had embarked aboard a vessel, which was bound on a long voyage, and had possibly cherished the hope that his absence from home would soften his father's heart and procure for him kinder treatment upon his return. It is impossible to say whether this might or might not have been the result, inasmuch as the opportunity of proving the same never occurred. It was not long after the prince's flight that his cousin, the king, took it into his royal head to destroy all his blood relations, among whom his uncle, the prince's father, naturally perished. When, therefore, the young man next received news of his family, he learned that there were none of them left alive except the royal destroyer of the rest. This news, strange as it may appear, afforded him no inducement to return to the land of his nativity, for dear as one's country should be to every well-regulated mind, life is not unfrequently dearer still and Prince Famcram was unable to discover any sufficient reason why he should imperil the one by visiting the other. He stayed away, therefore, and lived as best he could in foreign lands, until the insanity of his cousin, King Pugpaz, had been officially proclaimed and publicly made known. Then, having no longer any fear for his life, he returned to Pygmyland without delay, and at once advanced his claim to the sovereignty. There were, as is usual in such cases, some persons who pretended to doubt his identity and declared he was only an impostor. The evidence in his favor was, however, too strong for these disloyal and worthless persons. The prince had all the characteristics of a noble family. 
His hair was of a bright, staring red. He squinted frightfully with both eyes, had one leg considerably shorter than the other, and was gifted with a protuberance between his shoulders, which was not far removed from a hump. He had, moreover, the family dislike to cold water, a strong propensity to drink spirits, and a temper which, of itself, was enough to stamp him as one of the royal line which he claimed to represent. Add to this that his language was by no means well chosen or polite, that his disposition was cowardly and cruel, and that he cared for nobody in the world but himself, and you have a fair and accurate picture of the prince upon whose head the crown of the unhappy pug-paws was about to descend. It may be readily inferred that the prospects of Pygmyland did not seem to have been much brightened by the change. Indeed, between a mad king and a bad king, the difference appeared so small to some people that they were unable to see what the country had gained by the substitution of one for the other. Nevertheless, the unswerving devotion to royalty, which has always distinguished pygmies, did not fail that mighty nation upon the present occasion. Famcram was welcomed by the voice of the people, and those who doubted his identity were got rid of as soon as possible. His first act, indeed, put beyond doubt the righteous nature of his claim. He directed Pugpaws to be immediately strangled, partly to avenge the death of his relatives, and partly because he thought it a safer and more satisfactory arrangement that any chance of his returning to a sane condition of mind should at once be destroyed. Being now undeniably the only legitimate claimant to the throne of his ancestors, he determined to enjoy himself as much as he possibly could. There were considerable treasures in the royal coffers, which had been amassed by Pugpaws and his predecessors and with which King Famcram might have purchased as much enjoyment as would have served him for a prolonged lifetime. Being, however, of opinion that to be merry at other people's expense is by far the best plan if you can possibly manage it, he gave out that he expected the principal grandees of the country to entertain him at banquets, balls, croquet, and lawn tennis parties, and in order to encourage them in their endeavors to outdo each other in pleasing their beloved monarch, he declared his intention of marrying the daughter of the nobleman who, at the end of the next six months, should have best succeeded in that laudable attempt. The influence of such a promise was, of course, prodigious. To be the father-in-law of the king was an object well worth the attainment, and every great man throughout the length and breadth of the country felt his heart beat high at the royal announcement. Some, indeed, there were, who, having no daughters, were not particularly impressed by the circumstance, and spoke of the whole affair as a whim of the monarch to which slight importance was to be attached. Others, who, having seen the manner in which the late king had disposed of his relations, doubted the advantage of becoming too closely connected with the royal family, proposed to themselves to take no particular pains to surpass their neighbors in the attempt to please King Famcram. But, to tell the truth, the great majority of those who heard the royal determination, and who happened to have marriageable daughters, received the news with great delight, and determined to spare no exertion which might secure such a son-in-law for themselves. 
Conspicuous among these would-be competitors for the prize were the three great officials, Binks, Chinks, and Pigspud. Each was married, and none was daughterless. To all three, therefore, the field was open, and hope beat high in their official breasts. Since they first heard of the arrival and claims of Famcram, the three statesmen had unitedly and steadily welcomed and supported him. They had therefore some claims upon the royal gratitude, and hitherto their interests had been so far identical that they had been able to work together. Now, however, the interests of each were opposed to those of the other two. According to the laws of Pygmyland, the king could only marry one wife, and therefore his selection of the daughter of either of the three ministers would at once throw the others in the shade, and place the father of the bride in a position far superior to that of the other two. This circumstance, as might have been expected, caused some slight interruption of the harmony which had hitherto prevailed between these three illustrious personages. At first, however, the only intention of each of them was honestly to outdo the other two in the splendor of the reception which he should afford his sovereign. To Binks as Prime Minister fell the first opportunity, and King Famcram gave him due notice that he should shortly honor him with a visit to his villa, which was situated near the Pygmy Metropolis. Now it so chanced that Binks was a widower, principally in the consequence of his wife having died, and of his having thought it unnecessary to seek another. He had, however, two fair daughters, gems of their sex, and bright ornaments of the court of pygmydom. Euphemia was above the height ordinarily allotted to her race, and could not have been less than three feet and a half high. Her nose was aquiline, her cheeks flushed with the red blossom of her youth, her eyes dark and piercing, her figure all that could be desired, and her voice clear as a lover's lute in a still evening. Araminta, less tall than her sister, had a delicacy of complexion unrivaled in Pygmyland. Her blue eyes were modestly cast down if you accosted her. She spoke in tones soft and low like the south wind whispering in the mulberry trees, and whilst her sister took your heart by storm, she stole it into unawares and made you captive before you knew you were in danger. Such is the description of the two daughters of the noble house of Binks, as given by a pygmy writer of eminence at that time, and such were the charms against which King Famcram had to contend at the beginning of the campaign. The Prime Minister had intended that his entertainment should take the shape of a banquet, but the ladies insisted upon a ball, and a ball it was consequently to be. Immense preparations were made for days, nay, for weeks beforehand. The villa was gorgeously decorated, the ballroom tastefully arranged, and the choicest music was provided, and no pains spared to ensure the desired success. At last the day arrived, and the hearts of Binks and his daughters beat high with expectation. The villa was beautifully placed upon the slope of a mountain, at the foot of which a broad river wound through flowery meads and fertile fields, enriching and beautifying both in its onward course. The grounds of the villa stretching along the banks of the river were beautiful to a degree seldom seen out of Pygmyland, and never had they appeared to greater advantage than on the present occasion. 
gay flags streamed from staffs placed in the most conspicuous positions as well as from many of the tallest of the trees which abounded in those magnificent gardens sounds of lively music were wafted upon the soft summer breeze to the entranced ear of the listener and every heart was filled with rejoicing and merriment king famcram was received at the entrance by a crowd of well-dressed courtiers and obsequious attendants who awaited his coming with all that exuberant loyalty which is preeminently characteristic of the true pygmy he appeared somewhat late as was in those days always deemed becoming in royal personages and his coming was announced by the enthusiastic cheers of the dense crowds which thronged the approaches to the garden gates seated in the hereditary coach of the pygmy monarchs drawn by eight cream-coloured guinea pigs and clad in rich garments of various hue famcram drew near the habitation of the honoured binks in his hand he held the ancient sceptre of his race which was nothing less than the petrified skull of an early occupant of the pygmy throne who had by his will left his head to be devoted to this purpose and directed that it should be riveted in gold settings upon his favorite walking stick and further ornamented by such gifts as his faithful subjects might choose to bestow out of respect for the memory of their deceased lord as his successors each upon his accession to the throne invited new gifts to the sceptre as a test of continuous loyalty and devotion to the throne the head of the dead king had practically brought greater wealth to his family than it had ever done during his lifetime and although an additional precious stone or two was set in the skull after each recurrence of gifts the greater portion of these were it was more than supposed converted into cash by the various monarchs who received them and appropriated to their own royal purposes this valuable weapon king famcram waved in his hand as he neared his prime minister's dwelling and looked round upon his people with a proud and kingly gaze as he passed along binks as was but natural met his royal master at the gate and prepared to escort him up the avenue to the door of the villa across a profusion of flowers with which the way thereto was covered famcram alighted from his carriage and suffered his host to conduct him through the great gates and to go bowing and scraping before him up the avenue he followed squinting around him in a friendly manner and graciously expressing his approval of the beauty of the place but as soon as he had reached the stone steps which led up to the villa door the latter was thrown open and one on each side of the doorway stood the two daughters of the ancient house of Binks, clad in gorgeous attire, and each holding in her hand a magnificent bouquet of the choicest flowers, which it was their intention to humbly offer to their august sovereign, and which they lost not a moment in presenting. Scarcely, however, had Famcram set eyes upon the sisters and perceived their intention than he positively snorted with disgust, and starting hastily backwards during which process he planted his heel firmly upon the gouty toe of his prime minister he turned round fiercely upon the latter and accused him of having intended to poison him wretch he cried there is poison in those flowers which your daughters if such they be offer to me 
and doubtless it has not been placed there without the knowledge and consent of their vile parent. I know it but too well. Make no excuses, for they will all be useless. The nose of a pygmy of the royal race is never mistaken. My great-great-grandfather was poisoned by a subtle venom concealed in a carnation, and in the similar flowers which are conspicuous in each of the bouquets I see before me, I detect the fate you had in store for your sovereign. But you shall bitterly rue it. Seize him, guard. The unhappy Binks, overcome with astonishment and terror, in vain raised his voice to pr protest that nothing was further from his thoughts than to perpetuate such a terrible crime as that which the king suspected, and that, too, against a prince, whose cause he had espoused from the first, and in whose favor his whole hopes were placed. He vowed that his daughters were certainly as innocent as he was, and implored that the bouquets might be carefully examined in order to prove that no poisonous substance had been placed therein. It was all to no purpose. Famcram only flew into a still more violent passion. No poison in the flowers, he cried. The villain doubts his king's nose and his king's words. Off with him, guards, at once, and let his daughters be taken too. At these words, Euphemia and Araminta, who had listened with awe-struck countenances and beating hearts to the extraordinary remarks of the king, gave utterance to wild shrieks and fell fainting upon the doorway, from which they were speedily dragged by the king's orders, and hurried away with their unhappy father to the dungeons of the palace. Having thus got rid of his host and hostess, Famcram allowed himself to calm down gradually, and, entering the ballroom, permitted those to dance who wished to do so, whilst he himself proceeded without delay to the supper-room, and made himself as comfortable as possible. He then directed all the plates and valuables of the luckless Binks to be packed up and taken to the palace, and, having placed a guard over the villa, which he declared should in future be a royal residence, he departed with the satisfactory feeling of having made a good night's work of it. When news of what had been done reached Chinks, the soul of the Lord Chamberlain was greatly exercised thereat. He did not for a moment imagine that Binks or his daughters had been guilty of the crime imputed to them by their royal master. But, in the acts of the latter, he discerned a steady determination to possess himself of the wealth of his richest subjects, and to reign more absolutely and despotically than his predecessors. How to escape the fate of Binks was a problem by no means of easy solution. He was blessed with three daughters. Asphalia, Bettina, and Paraphernalia, so much alike that they could not be known apart, and so beautiful that nobody could see them without immediately becoming devoted to them. In these damsels, Chinks placed his hopes, and could not but believe that the king, however hardly he had dealt with his prime minister, would not be insensible to the charms of his lord chamberlain's daughters. Still, he received with some fear and trembling the notice which Famcram shortly sent him, that he would visit him at his country house in the following week. As the selection of a ball had not turned out well in the case of Binks, the Chinks family resolved upon another sort of entertainment, and, at a vast expense, 
hired a celebrated conjurer to perform before the sovereign and his court. The preparations were great, the company numerous, the weather all that could be desired, and the monarch, with his attendant courtiers, arrived in due time at the house and was ushered into the spacious hall where everything had been arranged for his reception. The three daughters of the house, dressed exactly alike, were there to receive him, but not a flower was to be seen about any of them, so that the fatal error of the prime minister's children might be avoided. They were dressed simply, and reverently knelt before the king as they raised their voices to sing, in tones as true as they were sweet, an ode which their father had himself composed in honor of his sovereign's visit. Scarcely, however, had they finished the first verse, when the little tyrant roared out at the top of his voice, They sing out of tune! They sing out of tune! A royal ear is never deceived! He has made them do it because he knows I cannot bear a false note. Seize him, guards! Away with him and his shabbily dressed girls! Chinks stepped forward to explain matters in his most courtly fashion, when the king brought down his scepter upon his head with such a thwack that you might have heard it at the other end of the hall, and, though his wig, which was particularly large, partially saved him, he dropped senseless upon the floor, whilst his daughters broke into shrieks of despair, which were really out of tune, and were painful indeed to hear. Famcram stopped his ears, and howled loudly for his guard, and before many minutes had passed, the Lord Chamberlain and his daughters were on their way to the same dungeons whither Binks and his girls had preceded them, and the king was occupied in selecting everything in the house which appeared to be most costly and beautiful, and directing that it should be forthwith sent to his palace. Thus, within a few days, were two out of the three great functionaries of the kingdom dismissed, disgraced, and left in great peril of their lives, whilst the king had added considerably to his wealth, and had got rid of two people, whom he had either suspected or pretended to suspect of being likely to be troublesome. These events made a profound impression upon the mind of Pigspud, and all the more so when notice came from the king that he should pay him a visit in the following week. The Lord Chief Justice was a wily and astute man. Although his life had not been reputable, the peccadilloes of great lawyers in that country were so usual as to be regarded by the public with a lenient eye, and, late in life, his appearance had become so eminently respectable that a stranger would certainly have taken him for a dean rather than for a judge, for a deep divine rather than for a learned lawyer. He had but one daughter, tall, majestic of stature, for she was nearly four feet high, and with dark hair and eyes so bright that they seemed to look right through you. Ophelia Pigspud was a most remarkable woman. She was well-read, so well read that people said she could have passed an examination with credit in almost any subject she had been pleased to try. Reading, in fact, was no effort to her, and her powers of memory were extraordinarily great. It was even said that she knew more of law than many lawyers of the day, whilst no one could deny her skill in modern languages and her astonishing proficiency in general literature. As the venerable Chief Justice gazed upon his child, 
who was indeed the pride of his heart, he could not but feel uneasy at the prospect of her being sent to join the families of Binks and Chinks in the dungeons of the royal palace. Never, he exclaimed, shall such a fate befall my peerless Ophelia. And having given utterance to this exalted sentiment, he thought for three days and three nights how to carry it out, and utterly failed to discover anything at all likely to succeed. Then he bethought himself of consulting the young lady herself, of whose opinion he thought so highly that it is curious he had not done so before. She smiled calmly when he laid the case before her, reminding her at the same time that there wanted but three more days to the time fixed by the king for his visit. "'Be not alarmed, my beloved father,' said she, "'but be assured that the blood of a true pig-spud will not be untrue to itself in the coming trial. Besides, the education which your kind care has provided for me has taught me means of escape from even worse dangers than those which can proceed from our tyrannical sovereign. Doubt not that it will turn out well. With such reassuring words did the daughter of the Chief Justice restore courage to the heart of her parent, and he began to look forward with less fear to the banquet at which it had been arranged that he should entertain his royal master. It was to be served in the large banqueting hall of his townhouse, and great preparations were set on foot for several days before that appointed for the festive gathering. But instead of busying herself about the matter, Ophelia treated it as if it was one wholly indifferent to her, and refused to be troubled about it in any way whatever. It was in vain that the domestics, who were accustomed to take all orders from her, besought her to give various directions upon several questions which arose. She declined altogether, deputing everything to Mrs. Brushamop, the housekeeper, and telling old Winnelies, the butler, not to come near her on pain of instant dismissal. Her own rooms were in a wing of the house which stretched down to the banks of the river already mentioned and from a private door she could get down upon the banks without coming in sight of the windows of the principal apartments. But before I relate that which happened to the fair Ophelia at this eventful time, it is but right to inquire what had become of the unhappy families who had already felt the weight of the tyrant Famcram's displeasure. Binks with his two, and Chinks with his three daughters, had been cast into the dungeons of the royal palace, and the wife of Chinks, having been added to the party, greatly increased the misery of all by her continual upbraidings of her husband and his friend at the cause of the misfortune which had befallen their two families, which were all the more hard to bear, because they were totally unreasonable and without foundation. The dungeons were small, hot, and unsavory, and the prisoners suffered greatly, especially as the food supplied to them was scanty in quantity and wretched in quality. The young ladies endeavored to pass away the time in composing epitaphs upon their parents and themselves, which after all did but little towards raising their spirits, being, as such things not uncommonly are, of a somewhat melancholy character. Euphemia and Araminta, however, were so proud of one of their compositions that it would be a pity that it should be lost to the world. Here lies the minister, Great Binks. No more he for his country thinks, 
no more he eats no more he drinks but conquered by misfortune sinks the daughters of the lord chamberlain were scarcely equal to such a poetic effort as the above but determined not to be behindhand presented their parent with the following stanza look through these bars with the eye of lynx and see the chamberlain lord chinks he scarce can breathe and feebly winks quite done to death by prison stinks in this manner did the innocent maidens endeavour to lighten the hours of captivity which passed over their heads and when upon the second week of their imprisonment they were moved into larger and more airy apartments hope at once revived within their drooping bosoms it must however be confessed that in the midst of their distress both binks and chinks contemplated with silent but real satisfaction the probably speedy advent of pigspud to join them in their prison and share their sorrows this event they both regarded as quite certain to occur and without having any particular ill feelings toward the chief justice the three had been too long in the position of rivals to make either too sorry for any misfortune that befell the third especially if it had previously fallen upon themselves leaving these worthies to their expectations we will now endeavour to discover what was passing at the abode of pigspud it was the evening but one before the projected banquet the shades of the evening were fast closing in around the city and the mists of the river were beginning to rise like vapory spirits from the water when the private door of ophelia's wing was stealthily and quietly opened and a figure emerged clothed from head to foot and a cloak of dark grey slowly but surely as one who knew the road well the figure passed along the low terrace walk that led down to the bank of the river and stood at the brink silently for a few moments and then began to murmur words in a low tone a listener however attentive could scarcely have made out the meaning of that which ophelia for it was none other than the daughter of the house of pigspud was reciting for the language in which she spoke was strange and her tone somewhat indistinct marley quarley patchel farley monsto mackin furless sparley mondo pondo sicho pinto framsigallin hanontinto such were the mystic words which issued from the lips of the maiden nor was it long before a response was given a low murmuring sound proceeded from the river and out of the rushes which fringed the bank there presently arose a form of strange and weird appearance it was that of an old very old woman with a red cloak wrapped around her and an umbrella in her hand and a poke bonnet upon the top of her head she was small though not much below the ordinary height of a pygmy but the most remarkable thing about her was the extreme keenness of her eye which seemed to pierce you through and through when she fixed it upon you slowly she rose from among the rushes and scrambled somehow or other up the bank until she stood opposite to the maiden who had summoned her as soon as she had accomplished this feat she struck her umbrella upon the ground and remarked in a somewhat masculine tone of voice what is it ophelia and what do you fear that you've called your affectionate godmother here has your pa been unkind since no ma you have got or a lover appeared when you'd rather he not 
Are you ill or unhappy, or it's for a freak, that your godmother's presence you suddenly seek? Ophelia listened with respectful attention whilst the old woman uttered these words, and then replied in a low, sweet voice, Did I not deem the crisis grave, I had not called thee from thy wave, and if in doing so I err, forgive me, gracious godmother, my father knows thee not, great dame, my mother told me, all the same, thou wast my godmother, and so I love thee in my weal and woe, overcome by cruel destiny, poor binks and chinks in dungeons lie, and our bad king, a grievous sin, hath likewise put their daughters in. Dear godmother, twere sad, you know, my father should to prison go, but sadder still you'll hardly fail to see that I should go to Gale. Yet it is the time but two days hence, when Famcram comes on some pretense, he'll surely send us both to prison and make our valuable tizen. Dear godmother, pray leave thy wave, thy loving goddaughter to save, or tell me how, by thy kind aid, the tyrant's power I may evade. Whilst Ophelia was speaking, the old woman kept tapping her umbrella upon the ground in visible wrath, and a frown appearing upon her face, which was otherwise not particularly beautiful, did not greatly improve her personal appearance. As soon as the maiden ceased, she lost not a moment in making her reply. I'm ready, my darling, to do your behest for tyrants like Famcram I greatly detest. And if your good father was not such a dolt, from the land of despot he'd speedily bolt. For binks and for chinks I have nothing to say, and they're probably just as well out of the way. But as to their daughters, I'm really inclined to think that the king has gone out of his mind. And in your case, I'll teach him as well as I can a woman has rights just as much as a man, and he's vastly mistaken, poor wretch, if he thinks, a godchild of mine is the same as Miss Binks. Now listen to me, when King Famcram comes here, betray not the slightest suspicion of fear, but enter quite calmly the banqueting room, arrayed in your commonest morning costume. He'll show irritation and rage beyond doubt, you know he could scarcely be royal without. But never mind that, though he rages meanwhile, bestow on the fool a contemptuous smile. In spite of his anger, continue the same, and ask if he isn't content why he came. Whate'er he replies, pray be careful of this, and do not one word or syllable miss. As soon as he threatens, stand just as you are, but hold up before him this earthenware jar, remarking, King Famcram, determined I am, to ask you to taste of my raspberry jam. He'll do it, he must, since the truth for to tell, this jar carries with it a wonderful spell. And when I've said o'er it the words I'll now say, whoever you choose will acknowledge your sway. While kept in your hand, not a difficult task, each person you speak to will do what you ask, and once the jam tasted, you'll have for your slave King Famcram and teach him the way to behave. 
but keep the jar safe, for broken or chipped, of your spell and your sway you'll be speedily stripped. With these words the old lady, who, whilst speaking, had pulled out of some pocket or other, or else from the folds of her umbrella, a small jar, now held it aloft in her hand and displayed it before the eyes of Ophelia. As soon as she had done so, for as long a time as she thought fit, she stuck her umbrella firmly into the ground, and holding the jar immediately over it, pronounced certain mystic and fearful words which no mortal of ordinary nature could utter, much less write, and which there is the less reason to mention, because if they were written or uttered, no child of man could possibly understand them. But when she had finished this fearful muttering to herself, she spoke out more loudly, addressing herself thus to the jar and its contents. Jar, possessed of mighty spell, do thy work and do it well. Serve Ophelia night and day, Famcram bring beneath her sway. Jam, do duty day and night, tempt the royal appetite. Be to Famcram wine and meat, bring him to Ophelia's feet. Calls him eagerly to crave life, but as Ophelia's slave. Bow him humbly, bring him down, at her footstool place his crown, and thy mission to fulfill, let him live, but by her will. Having finished her incantation, and repeated these lines in a voice sufficiently distinct, though not unlike the croak of a raven, the old woman now turned once more to Ophelia, as if to ascertain whether she had anything more to say. The maiden smiled sweetly upon her, and at once expressed her thanks in the following words. Dear Godmother, how good thou art! The burden now has left my heart, which like a weight has bowed me down, with fear of tyrant Famcram's frown. Well do I know twere hard to find a counsellor more wise and kind, and with thy might and magic aid, no longer shall I feel afraid. I'll use the jar and jam as told, and very tight the former hold. And when King Famcram is subdued, I, with this magic power imbued, will make him slave and let him know it, and ne'er forget to whom I owe it. So speaking, Ophelia held out her hand for the promised jar, when the old woman, making a stride forward, placed it in her hands, and then, throwing both her arms round the maiden, clasped her tightly in a long and loving embrace, with which she could very well have dispensed. Gratitude, however, for the most immense favor which she was about to receive at the hands of her excellent godmother, prevented her from disclosing the repugnance which she probably felt at the vehemence of the old lady's affection and having endured it with silent fortitude, she took the jar into her hands, and, bidding her companion a respectful farewell, forthwith re-entered the private door through which she had come, and shortly disappeared within the house. The old woman then took up her umbrella, and slowly descending the bank of the river to the rushes from which she had emerged, speedily became invisible. The shades of night closed in, and darkness soon set its seal upon the pygmy capital and nation. The chief justice did not see his daughter that evening, and although he had great confidence in her sagacity, talents, 
and resources, it must be confessed that he rose next morning with a heavy heart. In all probability, he thought, it was his last day of office, and not only of office, but of freedom. With the fate of the Prime Minister and the Lord Chamberlain before his eyes, how could he possibly hope to escape? For a moment the thought of flight crossed his mind, but was as instantly banished. His hopes, his wealth, his relations, his home, everything that could make life pleasant was fixed and centered in his native country, and at his age no change was to be thought of or could be endured. And then, where could he fly to, and how escape from the tyrant's spies? No, the thought was madness. The event, be it what it might, must be encountered. The morrow must come in its due course, and, after all, he, a lawyer, a statesman, and a philosopher, ought to be able to put up with his fate at least as well as other people. While the worthy pigspud thus mused upon the melancholy prospect before him, he was interrupted by the approach of his daughter the calmness of whose countenance and demeanor was certainly calculated to reassure her anxious parent. However, although she spoke hopefully and bade the old man take courage and be sure that things would turn out better than he expected, she told him not one word about her secret interview of the previous evening or of the powerful assistance she had procured. So the old gentleman passed but a sad day, and could only console himself by resolving to be loyal to the last of his sovereign, and to provide him an entertainment of which he should not be ashamed. Vast indeed were the preparations made for that banquet. So many delicacies had probably not been collected together for one repast within memory of man. Nothing was omitted. From the oysters with which each guest was to be furnished at the beginning, down to the liqueurs at the end of the feast, everything was there, and everything was in perfection. Pigspud had even hired a special poet to compose and recite an ode in praise of the king, but there were doubts expressed as to the complete success of the composition, confined as it was to the doings of the table and celebrating dishes which were made to tickle the palate by their taste rather than the ear by their well-sung praises. The ode began, Come servants all, the table put on, well-roasted beef and tender mutton. Guests down your throats, white veal and lamb cram, and drink the health of our good King Famcram. Consume the oaten cakes and wheat bread, the calf's foot jelly and the sweet bread and own the table splendid that is, so well supplied with oyster patties. There was much more of this, and a similar strain, but in the confusion that afterwards followed, and in the interesting events which I shall presently have to chronicle, the ode itself was lost, and as no copies could be afterwards obtained, I am unable to supply the rest of it to the anxious reader. With regard to the entertainment, generally, there was certainly no fault to be found. Old Winnelys and Mrs. Brushamop had surpassed themselves, and the confectioners, cooks, and pastry cooks to whom had been assigned the duties connected with the preparation of the affair had exerted themselves beyond all praise. The decorations were gorgeous, and everything appeared to have been arranged with such care and good taste and with such an utter disregard of expense, 
that there were not wanting many, even among those who were acquainted, as who was not, with the upshot of the efforts made by the Prime Minister and the Lord Chamberlain to do honour to their sovereign, who prophesied a greater success and an even triumphant result to the Chief Justice. The hour drew near at which Famcram was expected, and ere long the distant trumpets heralded his approach. The mob cheered him lustily among the streets, not because he was popular, but because he was handsomely dressed, had his crown upon his head, and the famous scepter in his hand, which facts were quite sufficient to justify a mob in cheering anybody. Nearer and nearer his carriage drew, and at last stopped before the door of Pigspud's mansion. Then, after one last loud flourish, the trumpets ceased to sound. The king alighted to his feet. The chief justice received him, kneeling on one knee. Famcram bowed coldly, glanced right and left, and then slowly entered the banqueting room, while his host tremblingly followed behind. His heart balanced between hope and fear, but much, it must be owned, inclining to the latter. The king paused at the entrance of the room. Everything was so beautifully arranged that it was difficult to find fault, even for one who was determined to do so. The flowers, the fruit, the flags, the garlands, the decorations which met his eye were all so splendid that those who saw them, and I knew at the same time that the tyrant was certain to find some occasion to carry out his purpose, marveled within themselves what cause for fault-finding he could possibly discover, or what excuse he would be able to invent for his action. They had not long to marvel, however, for the next moment the eyes of all were turned upon Ophelia, who came sauntering down the room between the tables, very leisurely, even carelessly, and advanced towards the king. She was dressed in her morning dress of an unpretending brown color, fitting closely to the figure, and unadorned by ornament of any kind, save a steel chatelaine from which hung her sundry useful articles, scissors, thimble, needle-case, and the like, but which added to the suspicion which her general appearance created that she had merely walked from her sitting-room to the banqueting-hall without any change of toilet in honour of the king. This was quite enough for Famcram, and furnished him with an excuse for anger against his chief justice, far more legitimate than those which had been made the pretext for the punishment of his two brother officials. The king lost no time in flying into a violent passion. "'What ho!' he cried in as loud a voice as his anger would permit him to raise. "'What bold hussy is this who comes to meet her sovereign in common everyday garments?' What malapert conduct have we here? And he strutted forward, puffing and fuming like a turkey-cock. Ophelia, who had learned her lesson well, and knew how much depended upon it, paid not the smallest attention to the anger of the king, but advanced towards him with the same careless step and a contemptuous smile upon her countenance. Of course, this made matters worse and the unhappy pigspud trembled in his shoes in dire anticipation of what would follow, whilst the courtiers and attendants opened their eyes wider than they had ever done at the strange conduct of the infatuated maiden. 
The sight of the smile upon the maiden's face incensed Famcram to still a greater degree. He stamped violently upon the floor, and turning to the Chief Justice, demanded in imperious tones what was the meaning of this insult. "'Who is it?' he cried. "'Who is this brazen-faced daughter of a demon who dares to come thus into our presence?' The unhappy Pigspud, in trembling tones, admitted that it was his own daughter. "'Your daughter!' exclaimed the king, with a smile, or rather grin, in which fury, triumph, and revenge contended for the mastery. "'It is then in your house, and by your daughter, that I am thus treated? I will deal with you presently, Chief Justice. What do you mean, hussy, by this shameful impudence?' To the surprise of the king himself, and of every person present, Ophelia actually yawned whilst the monarch was speaking, and when he had concluded, kept smiling upon him with palpable contempt, and glancing round at the decorations and beautiful objects right and left of her, remarked in a languid, drawling tone, "'If you are not content, King Famcram, why did you come?' This filled up the measure of her iniquity, and drove the king nearly mad. Half beside himself with rage, he seemed to those about him to foam at the mouth as he spluttered forth his furious answer. Vile wench, you and your father shall suffer for this. You shall, by all that a pygmy holds dear, I swear it. The fate of binks and chinks shall be paradise to your lot, you wretched scum of the earth. Ho! Guard, seize these traitors at once and have the lowest and darkest dungeon made ready for them without delay. A groan burst from the lips of the unfortunate pigspud as the royal lips pronounced these words, for in them he naturally saw the realization of his worst fears. But before one of the guards could move hand or foot, the fair Ophelia, with the same smile continuously upon her lips, took a step or two forward, and, holding out in her hand the little jar of which we know, but of the existence of which everyone present was profoundly ignorant, said in a remarkably calm and clear voice, "'Pray listen, King Famcram, determined I am, to ask you to taste of my raspberry jam.' Scarcely were the words out of her mouth when a perceptible change came over the face, voice, and manner of Famcram. The first turned ghastly white, the second sank to a low whisper, and the third lost all its violence and became as quiet as the manner of a sheep when in the hands of its executioner. One shiver passed over the king's frame as if there was a strong internal struggle, but it was over in a moment. Murmuring something so indistinctly that no one was quite sure what he said, but apparently something about not liking to refuse a lady, he shuffled forward to meet Ophelia, whilst the crowd around was plunged in the deepest amazement at his strange and altered conduct. The maiden, as he approached, took a small silver salt spoon from the table near her, scooped out of her jar a good spoonful of the jam, and held it to Famcram's mouth. He meekly received the spoon therein, and devoured the jam without a word, good, bad, or indifferent. The next moment he groveled, literally groveled at Ophelia's feet, covering them with kisses, and vowing that he was her slave for life. 
the people could hardly believe their eyes, and looked at each other as if they felt that they must be in a dream, or suffering from some optical delusion, and that it could not be a reality which was passing before them. But Ophelia took it all quite as a matter of course. She ordered Famcram, in haughty tones, to kneel on all fours, and as soon as he had done so, she sat down upon him with the greatest calmness. Wonder upon wonders, the tyrant, who had shown every disposition to treat his people like miserable slaves, seemed now to be reduced to a more abject slavery than the meanest of his vassals. A moment before, he was uttering threats of vengeance against his host. Now, he was prostrate and humble, the meek servitor of that host's daughter. No one could imagine whence or how this mighty change had come, but the voice of Ophelia soon turned their thoughts to other things. Still seated upon her living stool, she bade the guests be seated, and told them that her father would do the honors. Having seen her power displayed in so miraculous a manner, no one felt the least inclined to disobey her, the more particularly as her commands were by no means of an unwelcome nature, and the feast was one of a very inviting description. No one offered to interfere between the lady and the sovereign, being probably of opinion that to do so would expose themselves to danger without benefit to their lord and master, for whom, moreover, none of them had any very particular affection. Accordingly, they obeyed Ophelia's commands without either reluctance or hesitation, seated themselves at the tables, and began to attack the good things thereupon without any unnecessary delay. Meantime, Ophelia kept her seat, and Famcram, not being particularly strong, soon groaned beneath her weight, especially as she did not try to lighten his burden, but sat as heavy as she could, occasionally lifting her feet from the ground to give greater weight to her body. The king spoke not a word, however, being apparently restrained by some power. He merely panted and breathed deeply, once or twice trembling so as to shake the maiden. Whenever he did so, she struck him a sharp blow on the side of the head with the back of her hand, addressing him at the same time with epithets, the reverse of complimentary. Beast, keep quiet. Be still, you stupid brute. And such ejaculations were all the king got from his fair mistress, and this continued until the banquet was well nigh over and most of the good things consumed. Then Ophelia arose, and taking the king by the ear, which she pinched and twisted so that an involuntary yell broke from the unhappy sufferer, led him to the head of the table at which her father was presiding. The latter trembled even then, partly for fear of the extraordinary power possessed by his daughter, and perhaps in a greater degree, lest it should suddenly fail her after all, the vengeance of the enslaved monarch to be worse to endure than would have been his first anger. No such fear, however, troubled Ophelia, who had her own purpose in what she was now about to do. End of Part 1 of Chapter 5 of Uncle Joe's Stories